When I played professional baseball, I used to spend the off seasons coaching and training other young boys that wanted to play. I thought that my status would inspire them. And so that's why I always thought, I was like, let me use sport as a vehicle to inspire the imaginations of others. When I was in college, I was able to volunteer and teach music and acting to kids as part of an after-school community development program. This program, and many like it across the country, was focused on providing a safe space for children to express themselves in ways they couldn't at home. I often look back and think about those kids. They were so strong, so resilient on the surface. But once you peeled back the layers of toughness, they so desperately just wanted to be loved and to feel safe. And for children who never have opportunities like that in the first place, who desperately need them as they grow up in unstable environments, how do they build the foundations they need to successfully transition to self-sufficiency and responsible adulthood? What responsibilities do the rest of us in our communities need to take on in order to ensure they don't get left behind? For this conversation, I was fortunate enough to sit down with Thomas Lee, CEO of First Place for Youth, an organization that supports transition-age foster youth on their journey to independence. Welcome to Living Untitled. When I joined First Place for Youth, the ultimate goal was to become an anti-racist organization. Hmm. I had and, no idea. Yeah, and that started back in 2019. Wow. And uh, initially, when I saw that, I was like, wow, that's great. Yeah, But then, like I said, I'm always in a growth mindset. I've, I've been a big disciple of Ibram X. Kendi and anti-racist thought, and I can't tell you how many books I've bought by him and gave him off his presence. Yeah. And then I started to, you know, continue to look at it and critique it. And it's like, wait a minute, we might be still missing the mark. We're still on the treadmill. Yeah. Uh, just looking at everything's from this racial lens. It's like, when, totally. are, when are we going to ever, <laughs> like, deal with the deeper stuff? Yeah. And, um, and there's uh, two ladies uh, named uh, Barbara and Karen Fields. They uh, came out with a book some years ago called Racecraft. I've heard of this. You've I haven't heard read of it, it, but I've, yeah. I've heard of it, and it's yeah, on my yeah. list. Yeah. But Racecraft, they they use it. They call it Racecraft because it's uh, playing off the the whole notion of witchcraft. Mm -hmm. There was a time in American history mm -hmm. when people actually thought witches were real. They say the same thing about race. They're still conjuring up yes. this imaginary thing and not dealing with the deeper stuff. It's easy, it's easy to conjure up these zany ideas about difference in people instead of looking at the harder truths like, these schools are all underfunded. There's no jobs in these areas. The water, air quality is not good for these yes. people. And there's no good healthcare systems in place. There's no good food. You know, mm -hmm. there's lab meat everywhere, <laughs> you know, stuff yes. like that, right? Yes, totally, totally. I try to really focus on the structural part. So. I did away with anti-racist. I don't even think becoming anti-racist is even possible. You know, everything I read by Kendi, he's like, you got to keep on working on it. It's like a long-term journey where you could be racist moment by moment. And I was like, yes. you know, that's not a, a, a that's not an achievable goal. Like, um, but we can belong, and that starts with seeing each other fully, and it also starts with bridging, as uh, Dr. John Powell talks about at the other in Belonging Institute, UC Berkeley. Mm, yes, and if you bridge, yes. you learn how to talk to people. You know, yeah. we don't like to talk to people with divergent opinions anymore. You know, we kind of stay clear of them. And I love how you're thinking about this, obviously, in terms of a commitment and investment that you're making in your staff, in your organization, and certainly coming from you as the leader in your organization. You're still a relatively new leader-ish. I mean, what it's been a few years at this that's point. Right. That's right. But I think that's such a wonderful opportunity for you to continue to sort of 
set the tone for the community that you're trying to build within your organization. Yeah, definitely. How then do you hope this work will directly support your mission as an organization when sure. we think about belonging? Yeah, there's a couple of ways. I think one, I should mention, I think the one of the reasons that are drivers for me to take on this role is to your point, I want to continue to hopefully build the culture. There's only so much culture you can build from top up. Mm -hmm. Usually middle management determines culture. Mm -hmm. We need all the things that our, our staff and youth feel, see and hear on a daily basis. That really generates in the middle. Mm -hmm. uh, the other piece I think is just a, about sharing I believe there's a possibly a little bit of wisdom and experience that I can share because I came up through the ranks like many of my staff. Yes. I didn't start out at this particular role. It's been a long journey. Mm -hmm. I started out as a case manager for adolescent foster youth. Yeah. And I was working right there on the ground with young people each and every day. And yeah. over time, learned certain things and and made a lot of mistakes. And um, and so I believe that, you know, now that the whole child welfare system is always shifting and changing. Mm -hmm. How do we make sure that some of the good stuff we pass on and the bad stuff we do away with? You know, I have that particular perspective that maybe a person, you know, just hiring consultants to deliver DEI can't bring. Yes. You know, as a direct service provider at one time and now seeing it from an administrative side. So I think to answer your question, what do I hope it will ultimately do? I want to make sure that we create a standard of care. Youth should not be lucky mm -hmm. enough to get the right person to, to, to love and support them. Mm -hmm. Every person that they come into contact with at first place for youth should love and support them. You know, when children are born, they automatically are born into a community or family. Yes. They don't have to do anything to be recognized and to be loved. It just happens. How do we make sure that the youth that come into in our world and even staff who come into our world, they don't have to earn a way into the first place orbit that we accept them wholly from day mm. one and don't put any added pressure that they have to earn their spot with us. How do we give it to them fully right at day one? And so they feel like a, a sense of belonging so we can move that hurdle out of the way and they can perform at their highest levels. So interesting when we talk about the word belonging, many people don't feel a sense of belonging with their own family for one reason or another. Right. And obviously you as an organization are working with so many youth that feel probably similarly, that they don't feel as much of a sense of belonging to this traditional idea of a unit of a family or the family that they came from. That's right. Now that they're growing up in the foster care system, now that they're growing up in a more transitional sort of environment in the context of family. I'm curious how you reinstill a feeling of belonging that was lost already to begin right. with, or maybe never even was felt from the moment of conscious mm. awareness. One thing about young people who have been in foster care, they have an incredible antennae for mm. authenticity. Mm. And so to, you know, thinking about your question, how do you make them feel a sense of belonging? They probably are always in tune on whether or not people see them mm. as one way or another. Yeah. And, and so in order to create that sense of belonging, I think we have to be able to be a great counterpoint of being able to show them that we see them fully in a variety of ways. I can't say that there's one particular, but there has to be a variety of ways of connecting and developing relationships and trust with them. Mm. But when they look in their eyes that we see, that they see in our eyes, that we are reflecting back to them, somebody that we see as fully human and absolutely has everything that they need and just need a little bit of time yeah. in order to discover it. 
We have to be able to reflect that back into how we look at them each and every day. Yeah. And that is not easy. That's not something some people can learn that over time. Some people just have it naturally. You know, for us, it's it's not taking any of that for granted and really being purposeful about how do we make sure that this kind of thinking and training and reinforcement happens all the time throughout the organization. And and hopefully the more that we can spread it again, we can take luck out of the equation and make sure every youth give uh, get uh, gets a fighting chance to be able to to strive and go after their own hopes and dreams. When I think a lot about belonging, how I tend to talk about it in the work that I do is really around community building. By being a mirror in the way that you said, you're sort of reflecting this sense of, you know, you're you belong here, you're appreciated here, you're valued, therefore you should see that value in yourself, right? Reflecting that back on them. But how are you also thinking about giving them the tools that they need to go and seek some of that out on their own, find that community? Well, I think that once um, we get through the first stage of building those relationships, we have to be a faithful source of connecting them to mm-hmm. a larger social network of people that could be potential supporters. We're never striving to do all the work. We do a lot of stuff at First Place for Youth. We help them to, you know, we support them with their life skills development. We help them find jobs and grow and get on a growth trajectory when it comes to employment until eventually they get to on a career path. Mm-hmm. We help them, you know, extensively with uh, finishing high school, going to college, and then completing those units so it ultimately does connect to their career aspirations. Mm-hmm. But in the midst of all of that, we have to be mindful about how social networks also influence sometimes a person's net worth, mm-hmm. ultimately. Mm-hmm. And that net worth is not always a monetary question. That net worth is how they also see themselves in the world yeah. and how comfortable they feel when they go and navigate into different spaces and develop a level of social capital where they feel comfortable in their own skin, no matter where they are mm, and no true. matter who they're around. Yeah. And so, although we only have a, a small window of time, usually about between a year and a half to three years with a young person that comes into our program, one of the focuses has to be on connecting them to larger communities of mm-hmm. people and making them become more interconnected. Mm-hmm. Um, Dr. John Powell out of UC Berkeley did some mm-hmm. fascinating research on what makes communities successful and affluent and it's uh, been some studies for quite some time on this about, called uh, Great American Societies. And they looked at how communities are interconnected. And those that are more interconnected are usually the ones that are sharing information, yes. the ones that are sharing resources. And those that struggle are those that are siloed. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we have to do, especially coming out of COVID, how do we bring people out of the world of isolation mm-hmm. and being kind of hunkered down in isolated spaces in order to stay safe and healthy? Mm -hmm. How do we get them reintegrated into society and start building their own communities that ultimately lead to the change we all want to see? Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. It reminds me of a conversation that I had with Essence Hardin, uh, their curator over at the California African American Museum. And they used exactly similar language that you just did because how Essence would describe the community that they were able to sort of curate for themselves over time, it's allowed them to feel very well-resourced in society. And so it's interesting to listen to you talk about community and talk about affluency with community beyond the sort of monetary 
value and gain and the sort of equivocating those terms together in that way that when we talk about resourcing within a community, it's very much like what Essence was talking about. And I love that you're talking about that here and you're helping youth within your organization to understand that as well and to see the value in thinking about becoming well-resourced individuals as part of a community, seeking out all of those varied resources, recognizing it's not just about career growth or potential earning down the road. It's about all of these other resources that are going to be so valuable for you at any point in your life. You know, one scenario that may help um, bring the point home mm. is... Um, and again, this comes out of some of the great work uh, out of the Othering and Belonging Institute out of UC Berkeley. Mm -hmm. And uh, Dr. John Powell raises a scenario. He says, think about how do people respond in the midst of a crisis? Mm -hmm. So imagine if for some reason or another you're in the midst of a crisis and you need $500. When you start thinking about community, who can you call? Can you call a family member? Can mm -hmm. you call a friend? Mm -hmm. Can you call a bank and be able to get what you need to get through that crisis? Yeah. If you don't have those resources, then that's where it becomes major problem. Yes. And being able to rely on others and having other people to lean on in the midst of those moments is really the, the real key calculus in terms of understanding where communities can really be a value to a person. I'll give one more example. We sometimes take for granted that if uh, if one day we you know just happen to lose our jobs and we still got bills to pay next month, what do we do at that moment? Well, one of the things most many of us who have uh, the privilege of having good friends and social networks, mm -hmm. we can call on some of our friends and say, hey, you know what? I'm looking for a job now. You got any leads? You know any, you know any place that yeah. might be hiring? And typically, those friends and family members will say, well, I absolutely know a place. Why don't you come over here? Let me introduce you to somebody. Mm -hmm. I have to tell you personally, I don't think I've applied for a job in the last 25 years. I mean, it's because yeah. of all the friends that I know of, from friend to friend to friend. Yeah, I've heard about the next opportunity to serve young people. Mm. And uh, and so I know I'm a, I, I'm a proof of that benefit of those yeah. social connections. And so again, I have you know young children and one of them is a teenager. And so when she's thinking about her summer job, you know, the first thing I'm thinking, well, let me see who do I know to get you connected so you don't have to do what I did when I was a kid, which is go and knock on every door Totally. Walking up and down the neighborhood, <laughs> hoping somebody would hire me with a handful of applications. So those those social connections are what we're trying to bequeath this this generation of young people. And I'm trying to make sure that we just don't do it for our own children, mm -hmm. but we use that standard for every young person that comes in into mm -hmm. our world. Absolutely. I love that. I love that. Now, you mentioned earlier you started your career as a caseworker, but you actually really started your career as something else entirely, <laughs> as a professional baseball player, right? I, I, I did dabble in a little bit of baseball. <laughs> I did. I did. So um, right out of high school, I was a late bloomer. I didn't grow until <laughs> after high school. When I grew, people started to tell me that I had quite an arm. And, uh, uh, and I could really throw the ball far and I could throw it hard. And I was really fortunate. I was lucky. Yeah. One day I was playing baseball and I grew up in Pasadena. I was playing baseball at Jackie Robinson Park right next to the Rose Bowl. Well, yes. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's the home of Jackie <laughs> Robinson, by the way, Pasadena, California. And uh, this gentleman, his name was Phil Pote. He was a scout for the Los Angeles Dodgers. Mm. And he saw me playing and he, and he walked up to me after we took infield. And he said, you look like you really enjoy this game. And I was like, I do. He's like, I'm going to keep my eye out on you. Cool. Sure enough, Phil Pote ultimately became my mentor. Wow. 
And not not through any intentional effort, he just continued to show up at places yeah. where I, play, I was playing baseball. And after I graduated high school, I was looking for a place to go to school and play baseball. Yeah. Didn't have a lot of prospects, I have to be honest. <laughs> I, I went to Glendale College. They cut me. They didn't think I was good enough. They're and lost. then They're I found lost. my way over to Los Angeles City College. And lo and behold, guess who's the coach over at Los Angeles City College? Phil. Phil Pope. Ah, there we go. <laughs> didn't know it. He never told me. I said, why didn't you tell me you were the coach? He could have cut out a lot of time totally. and energy. He says, I didn't want to guide you here. I wanted you to pick this place on wow, your own. That's cool. So maybe a bit of Providence is in there. Oh. So first thing Phil tells me when I walk in the door, he says, if you're going to play baseball here, you're going to have to start pitching. I was an outfielder. Okay. He says, you're going to have to get on the mound and you have to pitch. Yeah. And he says, uh, I know this is going to be hard for you, but if you want to play this game a long time, you have to pitch. That's where your talent is. Smart. So he convinced me to become a pitcher. Mm-hmm. I had a pretty decent first year as a pitcher. First time ever doing it in my first year of college mm-hmm. at Los Angeles City College. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the year, Phil asked me, so what are you doing for the summer? And I said, well, I got to get a job. Yeah. And uh, it's like my father's absolutely not going to give me any money to get through the summer. <laughs> And he says, well, I think I got an idea for you. Going back to social networks. Yes. I think I know about a job. Yes. I said, sure. Yeah. I said, sure. What is it? He says, well, just meet me here at the stadium. By the way, the field and the um, on the north side of Griffith Park is called Phil Pope Field. Wow. Yeah, they named okay. it after him. Yeah, That's he dedicated, awesome. dedicated his entire life to helping mm. baseball uh, grow and thrive amongst black children in Los Angeles. So oh, this is a amazing. white guy that dedicated his entire life to building and developing baseball players in South LA. Yeah, That's another story. <laughs> so Phil says, meet me at the stadium and uh, I'm going to help you find a job. So I'm thinking, okay, great. I don't know what kind of job he's got in mind, but I'm going to meet him. Yeah. So I meet him, I jump in his car and we take off driving. So on the backside of Griffith Park, of course, that's close proximity to Dodger Stadium. Yep. We drive to Dodger Stadium. So I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to be selling peanuts or something at Dodger Stadium hot dogs. So I said, you know, I'm going to have fun with that. I'm going to be totally. like that guy that tosses the peanuts from the, the third or fourth row over yes, and just really make yeah, it. I know, I know. He, the guy was famous. So I couldn't wait to be that guy. I thought, yeah. I'm going to follow that tradition. And when we go into the stadium, we get in the elevator and start going down. So I'm like, wait a minute, this does not look like the concessions ah. uh, department of Dodger Stadium. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to be doing maintenance here at Dodger Stadium. So I'm cleaning up the joint. We go to the basement and I'm just, I see nothing but cleaning supplies and all kinds of uh, pallets and tractors and stuff down there. I'm thinking for sure I'm going to be doing maintenance here, but I'm totally fine. It's going to be a job. Totally. So I'm happy with it. You're rolling with it. At the basement level is also the clubhouse level. Ah, so he walks me into the clubhouse and introduces yeah. me to the Dodgers clubhouse manager. Yeah. And he says, this is a young man I talked to you about. Hmm. He's the one. You should hire. Wow. And I became a bat boy for the Dodgers. Wow. Right. That's cool. And uh, and when I became a bat boy for the Dodgers, I was able to really soak in the entire culture, the professionalism, mm. the secrets, just the aura of what it meant to be a professional athlete mm. from the 1989 Dodgers, right? Yes. After the year after they won the World Series. Wow. And, um, and of course, almost all the way through every single player em- embraced me in that, in that locker room. Mm. At the time, there was another very generous person. His name was Ron Paranoski. Mm. He was the pitching coach for the Dodgers. Mm. And he heard that I had a desire to become a pitcher. And he says, well, I'd love to see you throw when you get a chance. And of course, I'm at work. And so he's saying, 
when you get a chance, come on down to the bullpen and I'd like to see you throw. Yeah. He invites me down to the Dodgers bullpen before the game. Of course, this did not go well with my boss. <laughs> but what is he going to say? He's going to tell Ron Paranowski, no, he can't be no, no. It's not going to be. So I'm in the bullpen practicing and learning from Ron Paranoska before some of the games. Mm. And sure enough, some of the pitchers like Oral Hershiser, John Tudor, Ramon wow. Martinez, <laughs> Tim Belcher. I mean, you name it. Some of the g- wonderful Mike Morgan. So many of the great pitchers from that time so cool. are all chipping in, yes. giving me tips. So yes. my learning curve starts to get flattened really quick oh, yeah. in terms of pitching. And even other teams are noticing it. So ah. the San Diego Padres are coming into town. Some of those coaches are saying, hey, tell me what's going on with you down in that bullpen. <laughs> they want to know the story. <laughs> and then Tommy Lasorda gets wind of it. Oh, okay. And Tommy, who calls me Tommy, only person in the world has ever called me Tommy. Tommy says he wants to see me throw. <laughs> and he comes down and watches me throw a bullpen before a game. And he says loudly in front of everyone, I'm going to get this kid signed. He's going to be a Dodger. Wow. And so things started to take off from there. I'll just cut to the chase. I did not (laughs) sign with the Dodgers. Uh, My father thought I was insane for not doing it because Uh he says, you know what? It's all about who you know. Like, are you kidding me? Tom of the Sword is vouching for you. The problem was the Dodgers only offered me $5,000. There was no way I was signing for $5,000. Money talks. (laughs) I'd seen Oral Hershiser's two-week check, yes. there was no way I was signing for $5,000. <laughs> so the very next year, I, uh, I resolved at that moment, I was like, you know, I need to earn it the old-fashioned way. Mm-hmm. I need to get drafted. I need to qualify like everybody else usually gets qualified to yeah. play professional baseball. Yeah. So I worked my butt off for the next year. Mm-hmm. And uh, Coach Pote, unfortunately, retired from coaching, and but still, he was never far. And I worked really hard with everything I learned as a Dodger bat boy for, the, for those two yeah. years. And then the Kansas City Royals drafted me, and uh, wow. I played with the Royals for three years and the Seattle Mariners for one. What an amazing, amazing journey. You mentioned throughout that so many incredible people that saw potential in you and therefore took the time, went out of their way to invest time and energy in you. To me, that's the thing that I love the most about that story, and I find so resonant in that story because here you are doing that today. You've spent... The entire rest of your career doing that for youth, helping them to recognize their own potential. Because, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but it feels like to me, you you learned that at such a formative age in your life, how important that was, that other people could spot that potential in you and therefore took that time to really dedicate to you to help you reach the fullest potential that you had in you. Absolutely. Absolutely. I've always um, kind of fashioned myself as a Promethean figure Mm. uh, Mm -hmm. in the lives of young people. When I played professional baseball, I used to spend the off seasons coaching and training other young boys that wanted to play. Mm -hmm. I thought that my status would inspire them. And so that's why I always thought, I was like, let me use sport as a vehicle to inspire the imaginations of others. Mm. Once my baseball career was done, I shifted gears and went went into uh, education, mm-hmm. and I ultimately became a teacher and taught English for seven years. During that time is when I rediscovered my own love of learning and realized that the story of Prometheus should be the story of my own work. Mm-hmm. How do I give the fire to young people mm-hmm. so they can warm themselves by the same fires that those who have so much, especially for those youth that have so little? 
Mm. And that, and I've always believed that everybody should be able to be able to, I thought everybody should be able to warm themselves by the same fire. And yes. so you're absolutely right. I've, um, it's been my avocation to make mm. sure that all of my studies, my learning, my experiences, how can I translate that into viable tools that I can share with the least of these so they can mm. hopefully take it and run with it. And, uh, and you're right, I've absolutely been fortunate. I've been lucky to come into contact with so many amazing personalities and people who genuinely cared about you know, what was possible in me. And, uh, and I believe that everybody has some innate talent, yeah. just needs to be drawn out. And how can we make sure that we create the conditions for those talents to come into full bloom yeah. uh, in our work? I think it's important to say this, like, you know, I've had uh, a very, you know, s several different lifetimes from baseball to education <laughs> to now building several nonprofits in my lifetime. Yeah. And now I'm at first place for youth. And, yeah. and we're also in a building phase as a national organization to make sure foster youth across the country are getting the support to be able to, to really strive and become independent and, and whole individuals. And so when I think about that work, um, what's critical for me is, is that they know that everything is going, we're going to make sure that everything is going to work in their favor. All they need to do is to show up, be themselves, mm. and be able to receive. You know, there's, you know, I think about the the aspect of love, the agape form of love, mm -hmm. is that you have to also, you have, there's a there's a form of giving, and then there's also a form mm -hmm. of reception. The young people that I work with for the last twenty plus years have been awfully resilient. They know how to get through some of the toughest of circumstances. How can we reduce some of the stresses and anxieties of all those circumstances? and get them to start thinking about their own personal growth and, and be able to enjoy what it's like to really be able to focus on self and mm. their own self-development over time. You mentioned in that, that you are as first place for youth, you're in a, in a, in a growth phase right now as an organization, which is really exciting. Taking the work that you have done primarily here on the West coast and now taking this to really address challenges that exist around our child welfare system, as you mentioned, now on a national level. Now, you gave me some homework going into this conversation, a book to read, <laughs> and I read it. And I actually read the first one in the series, too, um, because it was just, I love Daniel Quinn's work. It was amazing. The book that you, you recommended to me, Story of B, there was a really interesting concept in that book that I wanted to talk to you about. Now, sure. I know you read this like let's years ago. Let's so do it. I don't know how much you let's remember. So, let's do it. Let's do it. Yes. But it relates to that point about, I think, or rather I've related it to that point in my head. And you tell me where what, how you feel about this, of this idea of sort of addressing this big national issue that we face here in our country with challenges that exist in the child welfare system, dealing with economic uncertainty and um, just creating economic success by building a proper foundation for youth that are transitioning into adulthood. And you've expressed this to me before, that you sort of feel like this is a challenge that exists here in America, that we actually have the tools, we have the resources, we have the knowledge to solve. And in the book, the the sort of a character of B, shall we say, um, for folks that haven't read that, you <laughs> you'll understand if you decide to read <laughs> when I say it in that way, talks about 
sort of two things and asks this question that I found to be really central in the story. What do we need in order to actually drive this sort of meaningful change, maybe even meaningful change in the way we're talking about the work that you're trying to do with your organization? Do we need more programs or do we need a stronger vision, a shared sort of collective vision? And so that statement really resonated with me as I was reading that book and that concept as a whole. And I wanted to talk to you about that and bring that to you because I was very curious your perspective as you are now thinking about this larger evolution in the work that you're doing with First Place for Youth to address these challenges that exist in our child welfare system. Do we need more programs or do we need a stronger vision and a shared collective vision in order to actually make meaningful progress there? Wow. Well, let me tell you, I really appreciate that question. I appreciate you taking time out to read Quinn, too. <laughs> amazing. Uh, the yes. work was amazing. <laughs> yes, yes. You know, I've often, I've often said, and I really believe this, that every problem in the world can be solved if you have the right amount of knowledge and the right amount of willpower. Mm-hmm. We have studied, we have talked about foster youth. We have the data on foster youth at our fingertips. We have studied this population ad nauseum. So there's no shortage of information about what we need to do, what works, mm-hmm. and what could be a substantial way to, to make to ensure progress on behalf of young people who happen to find themselves in the care of the state. What has been missing, to your point, is willpower. Mm. for that collective vision. Mm. The the willpower, I think, will come out of a collective vision, but that willpower is getting more and more people to see this invisible population more fully. Mm. Yes. When we think about foster care, we're not talking about an isolated group of young people that, for no fault of their own, ended up in the foster care system. Just think biblically for a second. The, the, the care for orphans and widows is in there prominently throughout the Bible. Mm-hmm. And I think the purpose of that is because it was natural over time through either pandemic, war, or just natural causes for people mm-hmm. to pass on. And children and women who had uh, no way to take care of themselves would need support from others. Mm. And so when people need support from others through no fault of their own, we're supposed to step up yes. and make sure there's a social safety net for them. Yes. So that's one. So this is not a new concept. Where we do need to begin today, though, is to destigmatize what it means to be in foster care. I know I can speak to this personally, but I'll bet you many that are going to listen to this podcast have a family member that may have been taken care of, um, taken care of by a relative, by an aunt, an uncle, mm-hmm. a grandmother, a great grandmother. Somebody stepped up. Mm-hmm. to play the role of surrogate father and mother in some way or another. And this is so common. It's a part of our everyday life. When, yes. But we tend to think of it as just something distant from us, and it's not. Mm-hmm. Then there are those youth where everything has fallen. Uh, the whole social compact has fallen, and the biological parents can't uh, preserve the safety and security of a child. And also the extended family can't do the same. And so that's where foster families come involved. And that's where adoptive families come into place. And and of course, there's there's those times where the state has to also play Mm -hmm. the role of surrogate. And in all those instances, those are opportunities for us to make sure that we provide the same kind of support for those young people like we would have done 
if they were in our own families. Mm -hmm. It's just a, a small, simple standard. Take care of young people, no matter where they come from, no matter what their circumstances, as if they were like our own children. Mm. I think if we do that, mm. we can solve this problem in our lifetime. There's about 200,000 what we call transition age foster youth across the country. Mm -hmm. Transition age really means that they're between ages 16 and 21 years old. Mm. They are eligible for all kinds of support and privileges and entitlements to make sure that they're finishing school, that make sure that they're safely housed, to make sure that they are getting the love and support and guidance they need in order to become, uh, to transition safely into adulthood. But in our country, only 33 states have systems in place to provide that kind of support. And of those 33 states, many of them have yet to implement a comprehensive program to make mm. sure that they're getting those supports. The funding is already in place at the federal level. 2008, there was an act called the Fostering Connections Act that was passed mm -hmm. that, that would provide reimbursement to every state that opts in to pay for the services to support foster youth in this transition age uh, gap uh, between 16 and 21. Mm -hmm. And many of them are struggling. And the piece of good news here in the state of California, you know, we see about 90% of 19-year-olds that have mm -hmm. been in foster care are getting some form of extended foster care support. Mm -hmm. We're actually doing pretty well here yeah. in the state of California. Is it perfect? No. But we are doing quite well compared to the rest of the nation. Yeah. When we look across the country, only 24% oh, wow. of 19-year-olds are getting the support that they need in order to be successful. Yeah. And that's where we can do some work. And again, where does it begin? It begins with willpower. Mm. Uh, I, I'll admit we've got to do better to raise this issue and mm -hmm. make it and put it on the forefront of people's minds. We need to talk about it in ways that gets people, that invites people to be to join in and to, to find a place. Mm -hmm. uh, not everybody is gonna function at the same level or play the same role. Some people might be able to volunteer, others might be able to adopt, others might be able, may not be able to do anything but write a check. And then we also need to make sure the effort is sustained through the social safety net that's been established through federal legislation as well as statute at state level. Yeah. And, um, and again, what we haven't seen is that willpower. And it's yeah. going to require a collective effort to make sure that we muster up the willpower to do this well. This is a solvable problem in our lifetime. The collective vision we need is if we really do want to solve homelessness, if we want to prevent people from going into the justice system, if we want to prevent people from living multiple generations in abject poverty, we have to finally stand up and say no more. We can fix this right now. And I hope that we can, with your help and getting as many people as in, involved, no one's absolved from responsibility in this mm -hmm. effort. I think we can finally address this issue and start working on some other stuff. Yes. But this one is right here at our fingertips. Yes. And I think we're at an inflection point where we can actually do something substantial in this moment. So one thing that First Place for Youth feels like we're poised to do, you know, mm -hmm. we've been in business for 25 years providing mm -hmm. direct services to transition age foster youth in the state of California. Mm -hmm. We serve over 1,600 collectively from Southern California all the way to the Bay Area. Our work in some of the largest counties with the largest foster care system in the country, we have seen some of the most impressive data through our evaluation and learning team that we take the evidence that we've been able to build over the years 
And we don't use it for self-serving reasons. We actually love to share it with others mm. so all youth can benefit. After 25 years of delivering the My First Place model, as we call it, mm -hmm. to young people throughout the state of California, we feel like it is our charge to make sure that foster youth across the country receive the same opportunity to take advantage of what we've been able to accomplish here in California. Mm. So it's not self-serving. It's thinking about how do we help uh, and focus on the greater good. Mm -hmm. So First Place for Youth over the last four years has been working on a, a national campaign to take the My First Place model across the country. Cool. We just recently launched in our seventh state in the state of New Jersey. We are working with child welfare systems, nonprofit providers or programs in those states mm -hmm. to learn the My First Place model and to deliver it mm -hmm. to young people. And so organizations like Catholic Charities, Volunteers mm -hmm. for America, and so many others are bring, taking on our model and learning it to fidelity mm -hmm. to make sure that youth can benefit. And we won't rest until every youth across the country has access to similar like services. Mm -hmm. And like I said, this is something that is, can, is absolutely doable. We just need the help of everybody to get on board and think about what's possible yeah. because our, our mantra at first place for youth is more is possible i love that so much well it brings a lot of inspiration and hope you're shifting the narrative so that people start to recognize that urgency that willpower that they need to address these challenges but then you're also providing the tools right you're providing the resources and you're making it possible that all of us, me included, all of us can get involved because like you said, you have the you have the knowledge, you have the insights, you have the best practices, you have the plan, you have the roadmap. Now you also have the ability to scale that, provide that to others. I remember we had a conversation with a wonderful woman. She is the the president of ACLA Architecture for Los Angeles or Architecture for Communities Los Angeles, an amazing organization here. We talked about the exact same thing, that they are not just focused on the mission themselves. They're focused on sharing that knowledge strategically with the right partners, building that strategic alliance that's going to help them scale that mission, actually have the impact that they're seeking to have on the world in the first place. And to me, it's just so brilliant to see organizations like yours, like hers, now start to recognize that we can do so much more with extending our mission, expanding our mission by sharing our playbook, not being shy about giving that out to others and instead saying, hey, use this, help us make a bigger difference here. That is really amazing to see happen. Oh, oh thank you. No, thank you for that. I think it's critical we do that now. Like, you know, no one, there there's some enormous challenges that we're all seeing around the world today and even locally. And I think this is a moment for us to figure out how do we make the world smaller in terms of sharing mm -hmm. the wisdom that could benefit the masses versus the few. Thomas, this was so much fun. Thank, Thank you, you sir. for Thank an amazing you. conversation. Thank you. This episode was produced by the Untitled Future team. For more information about Untitled Future, please visit us at untitledfuture.com or follow us on LinkedIn. And for more episodes, please subscribe to our show wherever you listen to podcasts. Once again, I'm your host, Justin Boone. Thanks for listening. And remember, life's better when you belong.